Just kidding. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Undead Airlock, a weekly podcast dedicated to the evaluation and enjoyment of all things horror. I'm your host, Hannah Selector, and if you're here for the first time, thank you so much for coming. We are so glad you're here. And if you're returning for another listen, hey again, I am so glad you're back. I totally missed you. Just a couple of housekeeping things before we get started. We're now up on iTunes and Acast, so check us out there if those are your preferred listening-slash-downloading-slash-streaming services. Um, some corrections from last week, horror of horrors. Uh, when I mentioned the play The Spectre, I actually meant to say The Castle Spectre by Matthew Lewis. I'm pretty sure no one was scrambling to read it, but still, a correction. Also, it's been pointed out to me that I apologized to my mom when I swore last week, but I never mentioned my dad. I guess people are concerned that he's maybe not in the picture or doesn't care about my language, but uh, he is, and he does. So this week, I'll be sure and throw an apology out to uh, dear old dad if I happen to let drop another S-bomb. And finally, forgive me, I didn't mention Bill Mosley when I talked about Repo, the genetic opera. How this sin was committed, I'm not sure, but um, Mr. Mosley is a fabulous contributor to the horror genre and has appeared in all sorts of beloved cult classics like House of a Thousand Corpses, and The Devil's Rejects. I'm sorry, Bill. I love you. I hope we can still be friends. Oh, and one last thing. Thank you listeners who reached out so much for all the support this week. I've gotten tons of lovely emails and Twitter messages, and they have made my day every single time I've read them. I did my best to answer every single one. If I missed you, just let me know, and I'm happy to reply. We've got lots of exciting stuff in the works, and I hope you stick with me. You guys are the best. Alrighty, now to the good part. For our second episode, we're going to be exploring one of the most fun, most exciting, most important concepts in horror. Monsters! We've got a little etymology lesson, a little history, a theme study across media forms, and a look into some of the special effects that bring monsters to life in our beloved horror films. So, what are monsters? It seems like an obvious answer, but let's go ahead and break it down anyway. Webster's Dictionary defines monsters in several different ways. An animal or plant of abnormal form or structure. One who deviates from normal or acceptable behavior or character. A threatening force. An animal of strange or terrifying shape. One unusually large for its kind. Or something monstrous, especially a person of unnatural or extreme ugliness, deformity, wickedness, or cruelty. Okay, well, I guess that pretty much covers it. I'll uh, see you guys next week, and uh, I'm kidding, of course, I'm kidding. Let's try and put those definitions into context and talk a little etymology. Monster, being an English word, was a term that didn't really exist in ancient cultures. But, of course, the concept and equivalent words are present at this time. Proto-Indo-European religions and other belief systems described spirits and gods, monstrous beings that in all of their legends created, destroyed, frightened, and awed the people. Amaru, which were Incan serpent creatures that could enter the spiritual realm through underground caves. The Amit, an Egyptian monster with the head of a crocodile, the body of a lion, and the butt of a hippo that devoured the hearts of evil men during the judgment of the dead. Or the Naga a figure of Jain Dharma, Hindu, and Buddhist religious mythology. 
which was a god or divine being that took the form of a huge king cobra with human features. Spooky. In ancient Greece, a pretty close equivalent of the word monster was being used. Theros, which means beast. In the culture and religion of the ancient Greeks and Romans, monsters were viewed as a symbol of divine displeasure. You piss off Mount Olympus, they send the Hydra. You dig? The word was also used to describe perceived failures of the human body, especially birth defects, which, in these old world cultures, was viewed as a bad omen, nature malfunctioning in response to a person's misdeeds. But beasts, monsters, weren't always viewed as a portent of holy wrath or annoyance. In fact, Roman philosopher Gaius Suetonius Tranquillus, Suetonius to his friends, once suggested that certain animals were monstrous simply because of their uniqueness. He described a snake's moving without legs, a fish's inability to breathe air, or a bird's ability to soar through the skies as monstrous. All of this because they seemed to defy the ancient understanding of the laws of nature. Despite the occasional cheerful application, though, the more negative meaning of Theris was pretty firmly solidified. The concept even began to take on a secondary philosophical meaning, which we see illustrated in Seneca's tragedies. Plays like Oedipus, Hercules, and Phoenicia, wherein the word was used to describe a visual and horrific revelation of the truth. You know, like when you find out your wife is your mom, as one does from time to time. The word monster first entered the English lexicon in the early 14th century. It was used to describe a malformed animal or human creature affected with a birth defect. This use of the word was derived from the 12th century old French monstre, or mostre, meaning monster or monstrosity. More academically, the word was originated from the Latin root monere, meaning literally to admonish, warn, or advise, or its derivative monstrum, meaning an omen or supernatural being that is a warning of the will of the gods. Usage during this time referred to the continuing idea that abnormal or extraordinary animals, or people, were a sign or omen of impending doom. A good illustration of this usage can be found in the account of the Monster of Ravenna. The Monster of Ravenna was a questionably authentic Renaissance-era monstrous birth. It reportedly occurred in early 1512, near the city of Ravenna, and it was sensationalized all across Europe. Why? Well, misguided religious zeal is at it again. Pictures of this monster and its grotesque features were symbolically interpreted by opponents of both the Catholic Church and the Protestant Reformation. These interpretations were used as a tool to bolster each cause. It was also common to view the monster as an omen regarding the outcome of the Battle of Ravenna. Nowadays, we know better, and modern medical science tells us that the monster, if it did exist, was probably actually a child with some variety of severe congenital disorder. The earliest account of the monster of Ravenna's existence comes from diarist Sebastiano de Branca Tedellini, who recorded on March 8, 1512, that news of a strange infant's birth had reached Pope Julius II in Rome. According to Tedellini's account, the child was said to have been born of the sordid union of a nun and a friar. It had a horned head, the letters XYV on its chest, and one leg that was hairy and cloven hoofed, and the other leg growing a human eye from the knee. On March 11th, the apothecary Luca Landucci documented how word of this incident had reached Florence. He had apparently received a drawing of the monster, and he described it to possess features such as a big horn, the wings of a bat, hermaphroditic genitalia, and an eye on its right knee. The sad story of the monster of Ravenna was subsequently immortalized by more chroniclers. 
Landucci's description appears to have been considered the authority on the matter, as his is the interpretation that keeps getting reproduced, almost word for word. Unfortunately, at the time of the monster's appearance, it was a very common practice for infants with any sort of physical deformity, especially those with a low chance of survival, to be abandoned and left to die in the woods. So, orders from the Pope were swiftly carried out, and the monster of Ravenna was abandoned this way. Even after its death, though, news of the monster continued to fly across Europe in sensational accounts. In a popular poem by Marcello Polonio, relatively soon after the birth of the monster, it's implied that it possessed two heads. With more time, the monster of Ravenna continued to change. It had more legs, more ridiculous and horrific features. Eventually, it even began to syncretize with the morality figure of Frau Welt, which is a medieval personification of worldly sensual pleasure and secular happiness. People continue to attribute the monster's appearance and its unfortunate life as a portent of evil, and a sign from God that he is displeased with people on Earth. Here we see the early definition of monster at its best use. Anything different, anything perceived to be wrong, was a sign, and a bad one at that. A major element of the popularity of the monster of Ravenna was that it appeared along with similar so-called signs. The occurrence of the monster at the time of other preternatural events was key in convincing Landucci that this was not an isolated incident, or an idle warning. In 1514, shortly after the example of Ravenna, a so-called monster of Bologna was reported. This child was born with two faces, three eyes, and supposedly a woman's vulva on its forehead. The baby only lived long enough to be baptized as Maria, dying four days after it was born. More contemporary accounts of the monster tried to explain its unusual features in religious terms. Flemish writer Johann Multivallis' evaluation of the monster of Ravenna reads, The horn indicates pride, the wings, mental frivolity and inconsistency, the lack of arms, a lack of good works, the raptor's foot, rapaciousness, usury, and every sort of avarice, the eye on the knee, a mental orientation solely towards earthly things, the double sex, sodomy. And on account of these vices, Italy is shattered by the sufferings of war, which the king of France has not accomplished by his own power, but only as the scourge of God. The version proposed by Multivallis was fairly typical of this time. The recent Battle of Ravenna was a pretty common theme in most texts produced soon after the incident. In other accounts, one writer declared that the monster of Ravenna was an example of the wrath of God on Pope Julius II and the people of Italy. Still, others tried to focus on the specific vice of sexual immorality. Other chroniclers had recorded the belief that the monster was born the illegitimate child of a married mother. Now, over time, the definition of monster has transformed to encompass any creature, usually found in legends or fiction, that is hideous or may produce fear or physical harm by its appearance or its actions, and not just unfortunate infants misconstrued as representations of God's wrath. Interestingly, one of the earliest examples of monster being used in the sense that it is used today appears in 1385 in Chaucer's Legend of Good Women, long before the birth of the monster of Ravenna, when he discusses the minotaur that inhabits the underworld. This passage reads, This minos had a monster, a wicked beast, that was so cruel that without a rest, when a man was brought in his presence, he would him eat, there helpeth no defense. Monster came to also mean huge or enormous around about 1500, and soon came to describe things that were figuratively absurd, like a particularly disturbing thought. The word usually connotes something wrong or evil, and a monster is generally morally objectionable. 
physically or psychologically hideous, or a freak of nature. It can also be applied figuratively to a person with similar characteristics, like a cruel person, or a person who does awful things. Like people who clap when an airplane lands, or people who stand too close to you in the grocery line, or people who tell you to insert your chip instead of swiping your debit card. I know how to use a chip reader, Dolores. Shit. Oh, damn it. Sorry, Dad. Okay, and now that we know where the word comes from, let's talk concept and go a little deeper and get into the use of monsters and the themes they convey in the different types of horror media that they populate. First, let's talk monsters in written media. The themes and the concepts of monster fiction are rooted most firmly in Gothic literature, though there are certainly tendrils of origin in other points in history. Gothic literature includes elements of both horror and terror, as well as being characterized by a victim who is helpless against his victimizer. The victimizer usually possesses some form of supernatural power, or some other advantage over the victim, and uses it to cause strife in their life. The earliest example of Gothic literature can be traced back to Horace Walpole's novel The Castle of Otranto, which you all might remember from the last episode. But monster literature most surely found its footing in the 19th century, with the release of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. In monster literature, the victimizer is portrayed in the form of a creature that torments the protagonist. Gothic-inspired monster literature in particular evokes extreme emotions of sorrow, desolation, and isolation. So let's take a look at some early well-known examples of monster fiction. We've already mentioned Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, a story in which Victor Frankenstein, a young man consumed by his desire for knowledge, creates a monster using body parts from deceased criminals, trying to make the perfect man a person who is stronger and smarter than all the others. But shortly after succeeding, Frankenstein regrets his creation and abandons it. The monster, who has superhuman speed and strength, torments Victor and his closest friends and family. In Washington Irving's The Legend of Sleepy Hollow, the story is set in 1790 in the countryside along the Dutch settlement of Terrytown, in a secluded glen called Sleepy Hollow. And peaceful though Sleepy Hollow may seem, it is well known for its ghosts. The most infamous ghost in the hollow is the Headless Horseman, said to be the specter of a Hessian trooper who had his head shot off by a cannonball, and who rides around the town every night in search of his head. The legend of Sleepy Hollow tells the story of Ichabod Crane, a skinny and superstitious teacher from Connecticut, who competes against the local town rowdy for the love of Katrina Van Tassel, who's the daughter of a wealthy farmer. One night, Crane attends a harvest party at the Van Tassel's homestead. He dances, eats, and listens to ghostly legends told by the locals, but his true aim is to propose to Katrina. However, things don't quite work out, and Ichabod has his own encounter with the Headless Horseman. In Robert Louis Stevenson's story, The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, a lawyer named Mr. Utterson talks with his friend Richard Enfield about an encounter he had with a strange hunchbacked man named Mr. Hyde. Soon, Utterson finds out that one of his clients, Dr. Jekyll, has written a will giving all of his possessions to this strange Mr. Hyde. Eventually, it's revealed that Jekyll and Hyde are in fact one and the same, and that Jekyll has been using a potion he created to go between these two personalities. Hyde torments the town while Jekyll apologizes in his wake, and all sorts of chaos ensues. In Bram Stoker's novel Dracula, written in 1897, a man named Jonathan Harker goes to Count Dracula's castle. The mysterious Dracula has brought Harker there on the premise of buying a house in England, but soon Jonathan finds that he is Dracula's prisoner. After escaping, he realizes that Dracula is a vampire, 
and soon the vampire ventures away from his castle and begins to torment those close to Jonathan. Dracula has the power to turn into a bat, to command the will of wolves, and has incredible superhuman strength, among other talents. But Dracula and his other vampires are weakened during the day and totally repulsed by garlic and the crucifix. After Dracula bites one of Jonathan's closest friends, a woman named Lucy, it is up to he and Dr. Van Helsing to study the vampires and figure out how best to defeat them. Algernon Blackwood's 1910 novella, The Wendigo, takes place in the wilderness north of Rat Portage in northwestern Ontario. A divinity student named Simpson and his uncle, Dr. Cathcart, are on a trip hunting moose with their guide, Hank Davies, and the wilderness-loving Canuck, Joseph Defago. While their native cook, Punk, tends to stay in the camp, the others split off into two hunting parties. Dr. Cathcart goes with Hank, while Defago guides Simpson in a boat down the river to try and explore the vast territory of Ontario. When Simpson and Defago make camp one night, Defago begins to sense a strange odor on the wind. That night, when Simpson wakes up, he finds Defago cowering in terror from something outside the tent that Simpson can't see. Later, Defago runs off crazily into the night, which forces Simpson to go look for him. Simpson follows footprints in the snow for many miles, realizing that Defago's aren't the only set of tracks. A larger set of footprints, clearly not human, are set beside them. Defago has seen the Wendigo. Now, modern monster literature, which was written after World War II, differs a bit from earlier works in that these more modern pieces tend to take a more technical bent. In earlier works of monster fiction, scientists and doctors were deemed the most knowledgeable and trusted by everyone, even if they didn't provide any proof for their claims about monsters. In Dracula, Van Helsing claims to understand how they function. And without asking even a single question, the townspeople accept his proposal that vampires suck blood and follow his orders, giving blood to Lucy after she's bitten. Often in modern monster literature, technical explanations are used for supernatural occurrences. For example, in Richard Matheson's novel, I Am Legend, character Robert Neville notes to himself that Dracula is, quote, a hodgepodge of superstitions and soap opera cliches, end quote. Neville forgets these prior beliefs about vampires, including that they can transform into bats and wolves, because in his mind, without scientifically proven data, they're completely useless in his fight against the vampires he faces. Modern stories of zombies and the undead have also taken this scientific route, explaining their existence with mechanisms such as viruses or nuclear fallouts. Even though monsters in fiction have diversified incredibly since the genre's early days, there are still some common themes you can take note of when you're reading. The idea of terror versus horror, good versus evil, the dangers and pitfalls of innovation and science, man's effect on the nature around him, isolation, loneliness, and the duality of human nature. But perhaps the best thing about how fiction continues to change is that pretty often these themes and these conventions are completely turned on their heads, giving us new monsters and new ideas about monsters that we've known for a long time. But what about other horror media? I am so glad you asked. Let's talk monsters in games and video games. Here there be monsters, but they're not all bad. Monsters are commonly encountered in fantasy or role-playing games, and in video games, as enemies for players to fight against. These monsters might include aliens, legendary creatures, extra-dimensional entities, mutated regular animals, or something new altogether. In tabletop role-playing games like Dungeons & Dragons, monster acts as a catch-all term for hostile characters that are fought by the players. Sentient fictional races are usually not called monsters in these games. 
If you're looking for a fun subversion of the RPG monster concept, I recommend giving Vampire the Masquerade a try. In video games, monsters offer an opportunity to make use of a playable character's unique talents or weapons. It's important to note that monsters are by no means unique to horror games, though horror games are often defined by them. In the stories of a given monster's origin and motivation, a monster helps to provide a narrative that shapes the universe of the game they occupy. At their most basic function, monsters add challenges consistent with the theme of the game, and with its content in the same way that a difficult terrain or a particular level might. But a monster can do so much more than an environmental challenge. Think of the boss monster, which often appears at the end of a level and presents a powerful challenge to the player. These level bosses take on gatekeeping roles, like the mythical Sphinx. Or consider monsters that are often the most memorable feature of their games. Particularly, this happens in horror games. Pyramid Head is practically the mascot of the Silent Hill franchise. And even though a Dead Space fan might not be able to exactly explain unitology, they can absolutely describe to you a necromorph. SCP Containment Breach has a whole encyclopedia of nightmarish monsters that generate in unique random locations each playthrough and define the experience of the player. Where monsters were once somewhat one-note in video games, they now fulfill extremely diverse roles. They provide a challenge to the player in solving a unique way to defeat them, they guard certain areas of a game, they provide opportunities for leveling up, or they can even be tamed to help the hero in his quest to beat the game. At other times in gaming, the term monster might be a neutral or a positive term. Think about Pokemon, where ten-year-olds happily gallivant around the countryside, catching and taming new Poke friends to have adventures with. Or consider Undertale, where the word monster actually is more synonymous with person, and humans provide a subtle threat in the game. And now we come to monsters in film. Monster movies, creature features, scary beasties are undeniably a huge part of the horror film genre. A monster movie, creature feature, or giant monster film is usually a disaster film that focuses on a group of characters trying to survive attack by one antagonistic monster or animal. In the case of an animal, it's usually an abnormally large one. Any monster movie will typically fall under the horror, comedy, fantasy, or science fiction genres, or some combination of all of the above. Not surprisingly, some of the first feature-length movies to include monsters were horror or sci-fi films. In 1915, the German silent film The Golem, which was directed by Paul Wegner, served as an early example of a film including a creature. The Golem followed in the traditions of German expressionist filmmakers for movies like Nosferatu in 1922, or the depiction of a dragon in Fritz Lang's Die Nivellungen in 1924. By the 1930s, American movie studios began to produce successful monster films, like we said in the last episode, usually based on gothic tales like Dracula or Frankenstein. These were also heavily influenced by German expressionism. Generally, movie monsters are different from more traditional antagonists because they exist due to circumstances beyond their control. A monster's actions are not entirely based on choice, potentially making them objects of sympathy for film viewers. During the age of silent movies, monsters tended to be mostly human-sized, and in fact created from humans. Take Frankenstein's monster, werewolves, and vampires as examples. But this human-sized trend didn't last for long. For instance, the film Siegfried featured a dragon, and RKO's King Kong became the first giant monster film of the sound era. As we learned in the last episode, Universal Studios specialized in monster movies. Bela Lugosi played Dracula, and Boris Karloff played Frankenstein's monster. Soon they were followed by movies like The Mummy in 1932 and The Invisible Man in 1933. 
These movies, a perfect blending of sci-fi and horror, included some of the most iconic monsters of today. Universal also made many lesser-known monster films, such as The Tarantula, or The Mole People, or The Man-Made Monster. MGM's Mad Love, the story of surgeon Dr. Gogol, is also considered a notable and unique monster movie of this time. Werewolves, cat people, and mummies all make appearances in monster films before World War II. Following World War II, giant monster movies made a comeback on the screen. This was probably linked to the development of nuclear weapons and people's curiosity about their effect on the world around them. Early examples of these giant monster movies include The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms, Godzilla, and Gamera, and even Danish movies like Reptilicus. Around the late 1940s, monster movies saw a dip in popularity, especially after the creation of monster comedies like Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein. The most common theme of monster movies post-World War II was the struggle between a human collective of characters against one or more monsters. These monsters served as an antagonistic force representative of the damaging effect of human experimentation on the world. In Japanese cinema, the giant monsters that fulfilled this role were referred to as kaiju. These monsters were created by the folly of mankind, an experiment gone wrong, the effects of radiation, or the destruction of a monster's natural habitat. Sometimes, the monster might be from outer space. Either the monster has traveled to Earth or has been dormant on Earth for a long time, and it is released or angered by brazen human experimentation. These monsters are almost always villains, even though they're a teaching metaphor for mankind's destructive nature. The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms is still widely regarded as a symbol for atomic warfare. But Godzilla, who was often viewed as a metaphor for the destructive nature of radioactive warfare, has grew into a cultural icon for Japan. Almost always in these giant monster movies, humans attempt to destroy them using military force. This only angers the monster. These attempts by the military to destroy the monster always fail, and are now regarded as a genre cliché. And though you and I are hopefully far removed from any nuclear or atomic warfare, the monster movie is alive and well. In 2008, Cloverfield, a monster movie that focuses on the perspective of humans during a monster attack, is regarded as a look at terrorism and the September 11th attacks, metaphorically. And in 2013, Warner Brothers released the Guillermo del Toro film Pacific Rim. The influence of Japanese monster and kaiju movies here is clear. But how are monsters in these films created? Well, the answer is that there are three primary types of monster creation around today. Practical effects, CGI effects, and a combination of the two called hybrid effects. Let's start with figuring out practical effects. Practical effects are essentially anything in film that can be created using human hands. Makeup, animatronics, prosthetics, etc. A practical effect is a special effect that is produced physically without computer-generated imagery or any post-production techniques. In some contexts, special effect is used as a synonym for practical effect, in contrast to visual effects, which are created in post-production through photographic manipulation on a computer. Historically, early film monsters were depicted using stop-motion animation, puppets, or creature suits. But that doesn't mean that practical effects still aren't used today. Many of the staples of modern action movies are practical effects. Things like gunfire, bullet wounds, rain, wind, explosions, these are all produced on movie sets by practical effects artists. Miniature effects are also still popularly in use. These use scale models photographed in a way that makes them appear full-sized. Practical effects have a long and storied history, and not just in horror films. 
Special effects animator Willis O'Brien made a name for himself with the 1925 fantasy movie The Lost World. This film featured O'Brien's brilliantly rendered dinosaurs. Two years later, O'Brien also produced the special effects for RKO Pictures' 1933 film King Kong. And since then, King Kong has become one of the most famous examples of a monster movie. It's also considered a landmark film in terms of its special effects. King Kong went on to inspire many other movies in this genre, and more aspiring effects artists. Ray Harryhausen would soon become as famous as Willis O'Brien. Harryhausen was especially notable for his work on The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms in 1953. Similar to O'Brien's The Lost World, this film was about another fictional dinosaur who was awakened from a long sleep in the Arctic Circle after humans test an atomic bomb. The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms is often credited with kickstarting the wave of creature features that came about in the 50s. Some of these films included The Creature from the Black Lagoon, Them, It Came from Beneath the Sea, 20 Million Miles to Earth, and The Giant Behemoth, which was a remake of the original The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms. Meanwhile in Japan, film studio Toho was busily producing kaiju films using similar practical effects. Most notable of these Japanese films was, of course, Godzilla, which has spawned the longest-running film franchise in history. Other kaiju films included Rodan, Ghidorah, Hibira, and Mothra. Even though monster movies were much less popular after about 1960, Harryhausen continued to work on a number of films using practical effects. In the 1970s, several notable practical effects films were produced. There was a remake of King Kong by John Gillerman, and in 1975, Steven Spielberg directed Jaws, which, while it was labeled a thriller, is often regarded as a horror movie. Jaws, of course, features a giant great white shark. In 1979, the xenomorph alien appeared in the science fiction horror film Alien, directed by Ridley Scott. Both designer H.R. Geiger and costumer-slash-puppet maker Carlo Rambaldi won awards for their creation of the terrifying xenomorph. Throughout the 1980s and early 1990s, practical effects enjoyed a heyday in the genre of horror comedy, with movies like Ron Underwood's Tremors franchise or Larry Cohen's Q, The Winged Serpent. This was just before the technological revolution that made it possible to create digital effects thanks to CGI. Some of the greatest players in the special effects world made a name for themselves during this period. People like Rick Baker, Stan Winston, and Rob Botton are some of the most remarkable names in the industry. Jack Pierce, Dick Smith, Gianetto De Rossi, and Tom Savini are also some big names to make note of. These guys had audiences on the edge of their seat, biting their nails with horror as they watched these practical effects bring monsters and nightmares to life. Some more modern horror fans might not have the same nostalgic feelings about practical effects as older horror buffs do. However, it's undeniable that some of the best creatures in horror movies were created using these practical effects without any help from CGI. Nowadays, though, it's pretty rare to see a horror film subsisting entirely on practical effects. But that doesn't mean that they're not around, and practical work hasn't disappeared entirely just yet. There are still movies being produced that feature some stunning craftsmanship and awe-inspiring makeup. Movies that still use practical effects, and more importantly use them well, deserve a special shout-out. At the end of the day, computers generally fail to give us the tangibility that practical effects produce. Some examples are District 9, Terminator, and the Hellboy movies. Shout-out to Spectral Motion, which is an amazing special effects house. A few examples of horror movies that use only practical effects, or almost entirely practical effects, are The Fly, Alien, Eraserhead, and some newcomers, like Cabin in the Woods, or The Autopsy of Jane Doe. This brings us to CGI effects. 
As I said, around the 1990s, the power of computer-generated imagery and digital composition allows filmmakers to make new creatures and new worlds and more scares using technology. Computer-generated imagery, or CGI, is the application of computer graphics to create images in video and film. Visual scenes are dynamic or static and might be two-dimensional, though the term CGI is most commonly used to refer to 3D computer graphics that are used for creating scenes or special effects in film and television. Computer graphics software is used to make computer-generated imagery for movies, and the availability of this software and increased computer speeds has allowed even individual artists or small companies to produce professional-grade films, games, and art, even from their computers at home. CGI has also led to the emergence of virtual cinematography, beginning in the early 1990s, which features runs of a simulated camera not constrained by the laws of physics. CGI effects also make frequent use of 3D modeling, which is the process of developing a mathematical representation of a surface or an object in three dimensions using software. The product is called a 3D model, and can be displayed as a two-dimensional image through a process called 3D rendering, or used in a computer simulation of a physical event. Amazing though these CGI possibilities are, it's important to note that some of the worst press about horror movies is in regard to films where CGI was relied upon too heavily, and had an opposite effect on its audience. Rather than frightening audiences, overuse of CGI can instead produce a humorous effect because of the uncanny valley. But this bad press does completely ignore animated horror movies, among which there are some very notable gems. Some examples of horror films utilizing CGI effects are Don't Be Afraid of the Dark and I Am Legend, based on Richard Matheson's novel. And a few notable animated horror films are City of Rot and Extraordinary Tales. Because of the artistry and impressiveness of practical effects and the amazing possibilities that come with CGI effects, horror movies nowadays are most likely to feature a blending of the two, hybrid effects. This is likely the future of horror. This is how we as an industry keep our soul and keep talented people creating great movies. This is a masterful meld of both practical makeup and CG to create the best effect and the best scares. Many, if not most, modern horror films make use of this technique. Hybrid effects give actors the ability to deliver a more sincere interactive performance and keeps the audience submerged in the atmosphere of a film without being shaken out of it by bad CGI. A few examples of horror movies where hybrid effects are put to good use are The Host, Mama, 2017's It, and Guillermo del Toro's Crimson Peak. Got any thoughts on practical effects in horror? Controversial opinions about CGI? Let me know via email or Twitter. Or just drop me a note and let me know what your favorite movie monster is. Alright, let's continue with our 31 horror movies for October. Again, we're going to stick with our episode theme this week, and I've selected a group of movies that feature great creatures and monsters. In no particular order, here we go again. Movie number 8, Troll Hunter. In Troll Hunter, a group of students from Volda College named Thomas, Joanna, and Cal set out to make a documentary about a bear poacher named Hans. Once they arrive at the site of an illegally slain bear, they interview some local hunters who say that the bear tracks look pretty odd. One man, the head of the Norwegian Wildlife Board, dismisses the idea that they're bear tracks at all. After meeting the mysterious Hans, the students follow him to try and secure an interview, but he continually turns them away. After they stalk him into a forest at nighttime, they start to see mysterious flashing lights and hear loud guttural roars. Once Hans comes barreling back towards the students screaming about trolls, 
The kids know that their documentary is about to be anything but an ordinary assignment. This movie's got humor and heart, and you're going to have to stay tuned through the credits for some seriously fun meta. Film number nine, The Thing. A group of American scientists who are stationed in Antarctica are disturbed one day by the sounds of gunfire ripping through the peace of their base camp. When they investigate, they discover a downed Norwegian helicopter, its only passenger shooting at a fleeing sled dog until he is shot by one of the scientists. When the researchers send two of their own to a Norwegian camp to make sense of the incident, the group suffers a series of brutal attacks that thrust the quiet camp into chaos. Some sort of alien creature that can take on any shape, including even that of their own team members, is responsible for the accidents. And the men begin to turn on one another as the Thing tries to pick them off one by one. Though John W. Campbell's novella, Who Goes There, has been adapted numerous times in cinema, John Carpenter's 1980s cult classic, The Thing, is the best and most memorable iteration. Kurt Russell's in peak form as R.J. McCready, and few horror movie fans will ever forget his fierce determination in the iconic copper wire scene. Flick number 10, Stakeland. Stakeland is a 2010 vampire horror movie co-written by Jim Mickle and Nick DiMici. After a devastating plague sweeps across the world, those who are unaffected by the illness find themselves living in fear of their vastly changed fellow man. Infected humans have transformed into hungry, feral vampires who stalk the ruined civilization, looking for people to eat. Entire cities are emptied, and survivors from every corner of the world have fled to its most rural parts, the countryside and the woods, looking for sanctuary. Martin, an orphaned young refugee, is fortunate enough to be rescued by a gruff vampire slayer known only as Mister. When Martin refuses to leave Mister's side, the mysterious man takes the boy as a sort of apprentice, and the two resolve to travel the ruined world together. Journeying through the sickened landscape, their apocalyptic surroundings reveal to Martin that the vampires are not the most monstrous thing that haunts the empty roads. The producers of the film, Glass Eye Picks, also created seven webisodes that are meant to serve as prequels set during the start of the apocalypse. These short films are called Origins, The Day I Told My Boyfriend, Jebediah, Willie, Sister, Martin, and Mister, in case you want to check them out. I also recommend taking a look at Mulberry Street, another great horror flick written by Mikkel and Dimitri. It probably would have been included on the list, but I wanted to diversify a bit. Film number 11, The Train to Busan. The Train to Busan is a 2016 South Korean zombie thriller. It follows the story of a haggard fund manager and workaholic who is divorced and single, trying to father his young daughter. For her birthday, she asks him to take her to Busan to see her mother. Even though his busy work schedule makes him hesitant, the father changes his mind when he sees a video of his daughter's solo recital at school. His daughter was unable to complete her performance knowing he was not there. On their way to the train station to travel to Busan, they encounter a speeding convoy of fire trucks, ambulances, and police cars. Nonetheless, they board the train to Busan and meet the passengers who will soon become their allies in a dogged fight against an army of zombies. A surly working-class husband and his pregnant wife, a high school baseball team, a selfish COO, two elderly sisters, and a traumatized homeless man who has witnessed some of the first zombie attacks. The movie takes place almost entirely on the train to Busan, as the zombie apocalypse breaks out and compromises the safety of its passengers. And, if you enjoy the train to Busan, you might also enjoy its animated prequel, Soul Station. Movie 12, The Hallow. 
When British scientist Adam moves with his wife and infant son to a house in the forests of Ireland, he mistakenly believes that juggling a baby, a fixer-upper house, and his work will be the entirety of his worries. But after an encounter with a mysterious deer carcass in the woods, things in their new house begin to go bump in the night, with no apparent explanation. An increase of frightening accidents and a strange, suspicious neighbor soon summon the local police to Adam's house. The lawmen warn him to be wary of the fairy folk, or as they are known locally, the hallow. And soon Adam and his little family are locked in a desperate struggle for survival against the ancient forces that make their home in the Irish woods. Film the 13th. Horror Express. Renowned English anthropologist Professor Saxton boards the Trans-Siberian Express with his latest discovery, a possible missing link that he has carefully dug out from the frozen ice fields of Russia's Far East. Aboard the train, Professor Saxton joins his colleague from the Royal Society, Dr. Wells, and reveals the great archaeological potential of the cargo he has just brought aboard. But the men of science have little time to revel in the possibilities as passengers aboard the train begin to turn up brutally murdered. As Saxton and Wells fight to preserve order on the train, it becomes clear that the ancient specimen may have a far greater impact on humanity than anyone could have imagined. Filmed in Spain in the early 1970s, Horror Express draws inspiration from a short novel by John Campbell titled Who Goes There, a book that also inspired the several film adaptations of The Thing. Both Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee take center stage in this sci-fi horror cult classic and deliver a performance heavy in both atmosphere and intrigue. And finally, film number 14, Honeymoon. Newlyweds Bee and Paul are excited to begin their secluded honeymoon in a cabin in Bee's hometown. The woods in nearby town are peaceful and idyllic, and the lovebirds are blissful until one late night, Paul awakens to find Bee missing from their bed. Strange lights shine through the trees as Paul frantically searches the forest, eventually finding his new bride naked and confused in the middle of the woods. With no memory of how she came to be so alone in the forest, Bee is quick to write off the incident as post-wedding stress and eager to resume their getaway, but Paul begins to doubt her casual assessment of the incident, and as time passes, Bee's behavior becomes increasingly distant and strange. Game of Thrones fans will be delighted to see Rose Leslie flexing her horror muscles in this moody, tense film. And if the Blair Witch Project didn't give you enough reasons to stay out of the woods, Honeymoon certainly will. Well, guys, it looks like we've reached the end of another episode. Remember, I want this to be the best podcast it can possibly be, and I can only do that with your help. Get in touch with me and let me know what you want to hear. You can reach me by email at Hannah Selector, that's H-A-N-N-A-H-S-E-L-E-C-T-O-R, at gmail.com, or on Twitter at Hannah Selector. Lucky you, I'm already getting better at this Twitter thing and learning every day. Check out our cast on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Acast, and don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Doing this helps other people find the podcast, and it sustains me as my soul slowly dies at my desk job. All right. It's time again for our Monster Masher sign-off, a set of lines from a piece of horror media that reveal how you can defeat the evil and get out alive. This week's guest voice is the very talented Evan Vogel, who is totally awesome in many ways apart from being my younger brother. Remember, if you recognize the lines in our sign-off, hit me up on Twitter and let me know if you figured it out. Listen up, this is Sorensen from the CDC. Cut off their limbs. It's the only way they go down. It's their limbs. That's the secret. Comms are down. We can't get broadcast out. So tell everyone you see. Until next time, everyone.